Think of this show in this way. Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern had a child, and that child grew up to have a podcast about building science. This is the opposite of that. Here's Bill Spohn. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Our goal at Building HVAC Science is to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Today's episode is more about customer focus. Today's guest, Anna Simone, has done an awesome job compiling resources for consumers to learn about factors, features, and benefits of building an energy-efficient home. Anna is author of Live in a Home That Pays You Back, a complete guide to net zero and energy-efficient homes. This features national building programs in the U.S. and Canada. Now, this is not a technical deep dive book, but more of a consumer reference for understanding the blueprints of building envelope, thermal enclosure, HVAC, lighting and appliances, water management, and much more. Anna is winner of three National Book Awards, and she's lighting the way for everyone to understand the home buying and financing process. She's written more than 40 professional handbooks on the topics of fair and responsible lending and often serves as an industry expert in the news media. There's a bunch of links in the show notes where you can find out more about Anna and the book she has written. On to the episode with Anna Simone talking about living in a home that pays you back. How are you today, Anna? I'm good. Thank you. So where are you calling in from? I'm in Connecticut. Okay. Just outside of New York City, very close to the border. And you've written a book that we're going to talk about today. It focuses more towards consumers, but it's got a lot of technical detail in it, very broad ranging. The title is Live in a Home That Pays You Back. So if you could share with us a little bit of your background that led you up to the point where you would feel motivated to write a book. Yeah. Actually, I sold my company about eight years ago. I had a compliance consulting business serving the banking industry. So for a 35-year period, I developed about 40 best practice guides for federal agencies like consumer finance bureaus, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, Federal Reserve Banks. And I wrote exclusively for mortgage bankers, consumer lenders, and the banking industry. And it all started pretty much because my company specialized in racial discrimination and mortgage lending. And I did some books under a White House executive order 30 years ago on that topic. And of course, I traveled all over the country. And what I realized, not only did my auditors, I had a staff of attorney and former bankers. And over a course of 35 years, we did analyses on about a million mortgage files. And a lot of these were delinquent loans, default. But we did a lot of expert witness on predatory lending cases across America. And I did a lot of traveling. And so by the time I retired, I realized that one of the common things that we saw when we looked at loan documents is that there was a a lot of misinformation in the home buying and home financing process. So in my retirement, (laughs) I decided to write for the consumers instead of the banking industry. And so my first book was written in both English and Spanish, Housing Finance 2020. And then I wrote Welcome to the Agrihood, which is about having a home that you can also have an organic farm or live in a community that is centered around a professionally run farm. 
And in all of my books, I do a state-by-state directory, which would be consumer resources, government programs. And when I researched all of the housing finance agencies in America, I was really deep into the weeds. I will tell you that I spent a whole year studying what the programs were and the discounts and incentives for consumers. And I saw that even five years ago, that the housing finance agencies were offering so many incentives for people to do energy efficient improvements in their homes. So that's when I decided to write the book, Live in a Home That Pays You Back, A Complete Guide to Net Zero and Energy Efficient Homes, because I know, I guess I have insider secrets. I know where all of the programs are and the incentives. And so this book also includes a directory for every state in America and every Canadian province. So that's what motivated me. (laughs) Excellent. And you detail out the forms of payback. You have five different things. And by the way, beautifully done table of contents. Anyone could go right to a point here and it's very well organized. So kudos on that. Can you tell us about some of the types of payback that you're talking about when you say the word payback? There are two types of payback if we want to generalize, and one would be quantitative and the other one would not be quantitative or qualitative payback. And so when we think of payback, we think about a return on our investment. So when you're buying a home, your mortgage lender might say, well, if you pay $4,000 in points, you can get a lower rate. And the first thing you're going to ask is, well, what is the payback on that? Why should I spend that? And what I, on my five types of payback, There are non-quantitative, and the first one that I talk about, which I think is extremely important, and that is you will have a healthier home. And Bill, as you know, because of the world that you live in, the home is also much more comfortable when it's energy efficient. And so today's technology options are able to capture a much wider range of airborne pollutants and toxins. And so Harvard University and the Energy Administration had done some studies, studies on hundreds and thousands of homes, actually, where improvements had been done in a house to upgrade the HVAC system and more energy-efficient windows, et cetera. And what the results were, people who had family members in their household that had COPD or had asthma were becoming more healthy. And it has been proven that energy-efficient homes are healthier homes. So that is an essential form of payback that has a value that is not specifically monetary, but extremely important. Sure. You do talk about actually the blueprint for achieving the efficiency, and you do include the building envelope and the thermal enclosure. You've broken it down in great building science terms here, and I think you've done a wonderful job at keeping the definitions succinct for consumers to be able to read and absorb. And they don't have to become a specialist, but they should become highly aware. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. Because as I said earlier, there's so much misinformation in the home buying and home financing process. And I've owned several homes myself, and I've done a lot of home renovation. My father was a power plant engineer, but of course, he did a lot of electrical and plumbing work around the house. And even as a little girl, I used to follow him around. And of course, we had a house that was probably 100 years old when I was growing up, and we had a boiler. And so he used to talk about the boiler all the time. And I was always very confused about that. And I realized that when home prices 
30 or 40 years ago were 50 or $100,000 across America. It was a little bit different, but now that the average home price is approaching $400,000, and the United States Census reports just came out on Monday, the average income in America is not really keeping up pace with the price of housing. So right now, it's really five times your annual salary to buy a house. And so when I think when people are looking for a house, it is so important that they understand that they can reduce their energy costs, which will lower greenhouse gas emissions, but they can also drastically reduce the amount of money they're spending on utilities. As a matter of fact, the census report that just came out on Monday said that the average utility expenditure across the nation now is $250 per household per month. Now, that's a lot of money when your disposable income might only be two or $3,000 a month. $250 is a lot. And so I think that consumers really need to have a better understanding of what they can do to not only have a home that's more comfortable, but to what priorities they need for renovating their home. And the concept behind the blueprint, I'm not a specialist by any means, but I wanted to have something that was illustrative, had a lot of infographics, so that people could look at a book and they could visually see the areas that have priority and follow an affordable path. And of course, there's some suggestions there for do-it-yourself projects, for making the house more air sealing, insulation, having a tighter building envelope. And as you said, it's just written in consumer-friendly terms. If I can understand it, my readers can understand it. Before I forget, if there's a listener interested in getting a hold of the book, where do they go? Well, Amazon, it's on Audible now. It's a three-hour Audible, and the narrator is, is a great voice. It's actually an easy-to-listen-to book, too. But for reading, it's on Amazon. It's got lots of illustrations. And, of course, there are about 2,000 websites that you can go to for additional resources and incentives. I know one thing. I think that when people read the, about the importance of water quality, what I provide is all of the instructions for getting your water tested, both in Canada and the United States, and things that people don't really think about when they're buying a home. And so I think that resources are very important. And so I don't go too deep into the weeds. It's not an overly technical book, but it's enough to point the reader into the direction of what, what conversation should I be having with a home improvement contractor? It helps people plan that's the whole point of the blueprint is understanding the home, which is basically a six-sided box. And each area can be taken as exterior improvement, indoor air sealing, insulation, which is so important. And then, of course, the appliances, the furnace, and lighting, and water conservation covers all those areas. Now, with the advent of the inflation Reduction Act, the IRA being passed in August. I admit this was written before that. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, actually, in the financing chapter, I do mention the 30% bottom line tax credit. I do have a lot of illustrations about how much you could qualify for a mortgage. I have a section called Roll In the Cost of a Retrofit because both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have programs where you can actually borrow 15% more than your house is valued. So if you bought a house for $200,000 and you are putting 10000 down, I mean, just a 5% minimum down payment, you would be borrowing $190,000. But you could actually add $30,000 and have it pay for the a deep retrofit. And you can explain that a little bit more, Bill, but a deep retrofit is really a whole redo of the HVAC system and making the house totally energy efficient. And under these programs, HUD has the same programs with FHA and VA, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allow you to actually increase the mortgage. As long as you have like a HERS rating, you get an energy rating on the house. And when the appraiser looks at the house, they have to validate that as after this energy efficient work is completed, the house would in fact be worth $230,000. But the out-of-pocket difference, believe it or not, is only $1,000 more because your 5% down payment ends up being 5% of a slightly higher amount. So it's a good deal. So within that chapter, I explained the difference between a tax deduction and a tax credit. So in the past, the IRS tax for energy efficient improvements, there was a combination of deductions and tax credits. But under when President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act in August, it created a way for every single home improvement that you do in your home that is related to energy efficiency is now a bottom line 30% dollar for dollar tax credit. And for the first time, that also includes independent generators like a Generac or or a Tesla Powerwall, those also have a tax credit. So if you spend $10,000 on a new furnace, it also includes the fittings, the electrical work, and the labor that is included in the energy efficient measures. So if you're spending $10,000, $3,000 is subtracted on whatever you owe on your taxes. That's how the 30% tax credit works bottom line. Now, there are certain appliances that are listed individually, and there is an annual cap of $1,200. It is 30%. However, if there are two of you that own your home, that cap would be increased to $2,400. Okay. And I actually have written a lot of articles on that topic and they're on my website, or you can just Google me, and you'll find those articles where I have a whole chart about tax credits. What's your website? My website is annadesimone.net, and all of my feature articles are on that. Okay. That's where somebody could stay up to date with some of those evolving changes. Yeah. I write a lot for Earth 911, and that's the last article I wrote on tax credits. Definitely incentive for doing home improvements for energy efficiency. Right. And the deduction is off of your income and the credit is off of your taxes. Is that correct? Yes. A deduction shrinks your income, whereas the credit shrinks your taxes. That's a good way. I like the word shrink. It's an easy one to remember. So the tie-in with Canada, how did that come about for you? 
I realized that so many of the programs, for instance, the home building certification, the Energy Star was probably the most important factor for me venturing into Canada. Also, my grandchildren were living there, but that's just a side point because <laughs> they happen to be dual citizens. So I visit a lot and I'm very familiar. And I realized that their home building methodologies and their certifications were so similar. But Energy Star has a very strong presence in Canada, and they have both Energy Star appliances and an Energy Star rebate program across Canada. And the Canadian utility companies also offer similar types of home energy inspections, which is called the Energy Guide in Canada. And there are a lot of incentives. But it was basically Energy Star. And then I noticed that there were some ResNet activity there, some HERS ratings that were also being used in Canada. But the Appraisal Institute of the United States has a very almost exact standard in Canada. So the residential appraisal report in the U.S. is almost duplicate in Canada. And when somebody is looking to borrow money for energy improvements, the lender it's often, depending on the size of the loan, the lender will probably ask for an appraisal energy addenda, which is attached to the appraiser. And the addenda can be filled out by an energy consultant. It can be filled out by a solar energy contractor, or it can be filled out by an appraiser if they are qualified. But Canada uses the same energy addenda as the United States. And I kept seeing a lot of the programs, especially the LEED certifications in some of the Green Building Councils, the Passive Home Institutes, although there were separate institutes in Canada and the United States. But I found that there was more of a North American combined certification levels and goals in both countries. And of course, in November of 2020, Canada was one of the first states to have a net zero emissions goal for, I think, the year 2040, for net zero emissions across Canada. And now the individual states, of course, here and the United States are making their individual goals on greenhouse gas emissions. It seems like this book would be a good handbook for builders to have because they're, in a way, you do talk about features, homeowners orient to the features. What do you think about that? Well, I'm extremely flattered that you would say my book would be good for builders. I think it's good for the builders to understand what their options are and what their consumers, how they need to explain it to consumer, because they're constantly answering questions about why won't I have a net zero capable home? And I thoroughly cover the program by the Department of Energy, which is the Net Zero Ready Home. And of course, Energy Star has a program called the Renewable Ready Home. And my favorite thing about both those programs is that the builders of America can build a house and they can put in the wiring infrastructure so that the components are already there so that when three or four years after you buy your home, you can save a lot of money and installing a renewable energy component, and it'll also be faster and more seamless because the inverters are already built into the electrical system. And I may be getting too technical here, but one of the things about the HERS rating 
and the building codes is we are now building so many homes in America that are off-site with prefabricated sustainable materials. In fact, the latest statistics that came out from the Census Bureau, which I was surprised at the very, very high level of data that's available about manufactured homes. And I talk about prefabricated homes, module homes, zero carbon homes, and because the cradle to grave carbon footprint is so much lower when part of the building is being done at the manufacturer site because of the sustainable materials. There's no transportation. The wood isn't traveling from the state of Washington all the way to South Carolina. The fabrication of the materials might be traveling 100 miles away from the building site, which lowers the carbon footprint, among other things. But manufactured homes has grown exponentially over the past decade. And I believe that we had exactly 100,000 more units year to date in 2022. Now that's through October. But we will probably end up with, well, maybe I might be leaving out some zeros here. I think it might be a million more units. There's a new publication as of last January called Offsite Builder. Yes. And they actually interviewed me for, on my house, which was a modular, volumetric, modular built home for their November issue. So not bragging on that point, but if Offsite Builder Magazine, you find them online, they're the ones that have really, they dig into the deep weeds on this topic that Anna's mentioning here. It's interesting. You do talk about, like, I have a vision for this book, like it's in the builders, their demo home. What do you want to call it? Their spec home. Oh, right. Yeah. Just put it on the counter and see what happens. Put a couple of little yellow tabs in it in a couple different places. Oh, thank you. I'm so flattered that you say that. That's a vision I would have to answer some questions and just make sure that there's a reliable answer that comes forth, again, in consumer language. I'm just going to flip open a page here. And for example, in California, and this is for all states and provinces, you talk about policy that's going on within the state. Things like net metering permitted on renewable energy resources customers own their renewable energy credits, incentives with all the various utilities, and not detailing out because they change so much, but just detailing the utilities that have incentives, Lodi Electric, Anaheim Public Utilities, et cetera, a ton of utilities in California. I couldn't believe how many utility companies there are in America. That would be an interesting data point to pull out. Live in a home that pays you back by the numbers. Oh, oh my God. To do like a little infographic on that, like the resources that went into putting this together. It's funny because 30 years ago, I wrote a book called International Mortgage Banking for the Mortgage Bankers Association. And I covered 45 countries and five continents. And I was surprised when I compared the number of banks we had in America, which were over 5,000 banks at the time, to the major banks in Canada were Bank of Montreal and Toronto Dominion. And I thought, it makes it so much easier, much simpler. So now here, 30 years later, I'm writing about utility companies that are giving incentives. An incentive could be a free thermostat or a complimentary energy assessment, or it could be light bulbs, LED light bulbs in one of their campaigns. And a couple of Utility companies are also offering loans and discounts, rebates. But there are a handful of utility companies in Canada, and they are public utility companies. And when you talk about the net metering 
certificates and the rules. We have 50 states, and if you're following the different policies, I mean, we've had almost 2,000 policies changes on the topic of renewable energy alone over the past several years. And so what happens is every state decides we're going to change our net metering rules because the utility companies are lobbying, of course, to make more money. And so what net metering is for our listeners is it is the special financial arrangement you have with your utility company under a two-way connection with the grid. So if you install solar energy or you put up a wind turbine or you have hydroelectric or geothermal, you're still on a two-way connection because if your renewable energy runs out, and in most cases it will, especially during because of the weather, then you start drawing energy from your utility provider. Because you are storing your household generated electricity and placing it on their grid, the payback for that is that you get to purchase electricity at a discounted rate. And after being a consultant in the mortgage financing industry for 40 years, I can tell you that there are 40 or 50 different types of financing options. Just gets plain confusing for consumers. And so when it comes to net metering, you might see a utility company offer four or five different billing, net billing, or net metering options to the consumer. And so depending on the option that the householder chooses also might depend on whether or not you get to sell your renewable energy certificates. And so people in California that are selling their renewable energy certificates were making four or $5,000 a year cash. Whereas in the Northeast, the people that are selling their renewable energy certificates where I live in Connecticut and Boston is my hometown. So most of my contacts are there. My old business is still in Boston. And because we have less sunlight, people can still make a certain amount of money on renewable energy certificates or solar renewable energy certificates. But the problem is it has become political and there's a lot of lobbying back and forth so that the consumers are not getting the opportunity to maximize their profits. But hopefully that will change in the future. But I would like to suggest that When you're considering a renewable energy component for your house, you're thinking it's going to cost me $30,000 to install solar panels across my roof, and it's going to take eight or nine years for that payback. Well, I'd like to suggest that you think of it in terms of a specific focus. If you install solar energy, of course, it's going to reduce the fossil fuels that you're using to heat and cool your house. But it's okay to spend a lot less and just get 10 or 12 panels and use it to power your electric car. Or another suggestion is just to get enough panels that you need to power up your backup generator. And I'll use the Powerwall as an example. And I have owned Generax and I could not live without my backup generator on my home before, well, Just to give you a little idea of what's happening, climate change is we now have in America over 51 million households live in areas with at least a moderate threat to annual losses from natural disasters. 
Now, in 2021, the National Flood Insurance Program processed 45,000 claims totaling $2.2 billion for weather-related disasters. We spent $56 billion to recover the aftermath of wildfire and floods. In 2021 alone on 14 and a half million properties and the homeowner disaster repair and expenditures doubled in the past 10 years in America. It grew from 11 billion in 2009 to 26 billion in 2019. And so the impact of this, there's two sides of that. We have 50 million households. Well, 11 million households are low income. And they can't afford to repair their homes. And so the impact of that, the destructive impact, not only affects the consumers, but it also is a threat to our housing finance system. So one of the things that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the HUD and the housing finance agencies do not want is to have an increase in their delinquency or their foreclosure rates. And so a lot of homeowners are not aware of this. Because even as a homeowner, they tend to not know about all of the government programs that we do have in America. Now, HUD established what's called a disaster response network. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have automatically authorized their mortgage servicers. So even if you got your mortgage from a mortgage company, if you have a weather-related disaster, your mortgage service automatically is authorized by the government agency that purchased your loan to give you a forbearance and pause your payments to up to 90 days. And during that time, the mortgage servicer is going to complete an investigation as to what the extent of the damage is. And depending on the result of that investigation, you could probably have a forbearance and pause your mortgage payments for up to 12 months. And the other surprise is that the disaster response network is also available to people who rent homes. If anybody wants to find out more information about that, you can just send me an email through my website at annadesimone.net. I would be glad to give you the website and the Know Your Options contacts in Washington because we just had a couple of tornadoes in the past week in the Midwest, and that was devastating. And one of the problems that we've had also in America is that the rising cost of homeowners insurance as a result of some of these disasters that have happened over the past several years, and many insurance companies are now taking steps to implement what's called risk-based pricing. And risk-based pricing means that depending on where you live and whether or not you're in a climate-resilient geographic area, you could be paying much higher rates for your insurance costs. And there's a significant number of homeowners in Florida right now that cannot afford their homeowner's insurance. And so one of the best things about making energy improvements to your home is to take that walk around your house and, I mean, you're thinking, I want to get rid of that musty smell in my wet basement. I don't want any mold spores or I don't want moisture, which turns into mold. And my basement, the water seems to be seeping into the basement. Well, 
I learned from my house in Boston that I had to grade the land, the grass, the land around my house so that the water would move away from my house. I had an 80-year-old house and I had to build what was called a modified French drain because I had that wet basement and that was really bothering me. But with climate change, if you're living in a coastal area, this can happen more frequently. So when you're having your home improvement contractor come to your house or you're having an energy inspector come to give you like a HERS rating on your house, they are going to walk around the perimeter of your home and they're going to look at the foundation and they're going to say, there's evidence of mold, or there's a lot of moisture here, you might need to have some regrading done. And so these are the things that are going to help your home be more climate resilient and you want to make sure that your hazard insurance doesn't go up. And I personally think that we're going to see a lot more discounts and incentives coming from the homeowners insurance agencies, just like you get a discount on your car insurance. If you don't have an accident, you get a discount on your homeowners insurance if you install a fire alarm in your house or a burglar alarm. Over the next five years, this is just my personal opinion, but I think that we're going to see more incentives for people that make their homes more climate resilient and protect their home against corrosion and foundation cracking. The drier areas, that's what's happening. It's the opposite of the wet basement. <laughs> Durability. just Yes. And maintaining that value. So fantastic topic here today. Thank you for connecting and opening my eyes to this book and to you and to your work. Thank you so much. And I will put some links in the show notes for those that are listening. They can just go to the show notes, some links and continue on with the process of learning more about how to live in a home that pays you back. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on the show, Anna. We'll be talking with you soon because you're going to record me this afternoon. Here. That's right. I have my own podcast, Jerry's. Thank you so much for inviting me, Bill. You're welcome. We'll get a link on the, your podcast too into the notes. Thank you, Anna. Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We hope you picked up a few notes and got curious about Anna's book, Living in a Home That Pays You Back. Other great trade-related resources and influencers include HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Rarden, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, and MeasureQuick. I also host the Res Talk podcast where I talk an awful lot about housing-related and home energy rating systems. You can find that at ResTalk, R-E-S-T-A-L-K, anywhere you look for podcasts. After listening today, if you like what you've heard and you've not subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science into the search bar of any typical podcast app and subscribing. I want to thank you for listening to Building HVAC Science, which is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with me about the podcast or any related topics, reach out at bill at truetechtools.com. That's the company that I'm a co-owner of. Thanks again for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care. <laughs>